Welcome to High Heels in Politics, the podcast where we talk with the leaders of Ohio and beyond. And now, your host, Marianne Christie. Welcome to High Heels in Politics. Have you asked the questions, how has the Cincinnati Public Library adapted to high tech? How does it partner with organizations and other institutions? And what is its future role? As your host, Mary Ann Christie, you will meet the two women who are strong and passionate advocates for the Cincinnati Library. Diane Cunningham Redden, former president of the Library Board of Directors, and Paula Bram Lager, the executive director. Diane has chaired several major library committees and presently serves as vice president. Diane is a graduate of the University of Cincinnati and recently retired from a career that focused on military and public safety equipment. Paula Bramhager has worked in public libraries for more than 25 years and has held major leadership positions with the Cincinnati Library. She received her BA from the University of Cincinnati and her master's degrees from Indiana University and Northern Kentucky. Welcome, Diane and Paula. I'd like to begin with asking each of you, when did your interest for working with the library begin? Diane, what led you to volunteering with the library and what resources have you brought from your private sector career that is beneficial to your work with the library. Thank you, Marianne. Well, growing up in Ross Moyne, which is a little known term these days, it's part of Sycamore Township, my grade school was right across from Deer Park High School, and embedded in Deer Park High School was the Deer Park Branch Library. So that was kind of a safe place to go after school. My mother worked from the time we were very small, and there was no after-school child care. So as long as we behaved and the librarians were quick to tell us to shush, because it was in the days when there was a lot of shushing at the library, we could go over and I could go through the, the card file of the Dewey Decimal System and found, found a safe place there to explore life. There was nothing like reading historical novels and Greek mythology. I loved that when I was a child. So I'm a 10-year-old kid reading about the Greek gods, and it was just a real escape for me. In fact, my oldest brother, his very first job when he turned 16 was at the Deer Park Branch Library, and it had this very high desk like a lot of our old libraries still do today. And I remember he was lording over us smaller kids, which he really liked. When I had the opportunity came forward about five years ago that the library was looking for a new trustee, I threw my name in the hat. And I felt like I was within five years of retiring from the job that I loved. I was in management during my 40 years in public safety sales. And it was just something that I thought I could bring from my managerial style into the library and uh, wanted to experience it from the other side as opposed to just as a customer. Paula, your interest in libraries must have begun at an early age. What was the stimulus for you to pursue a career working with books? Well, like Diane, I spent a fair amount of time in public libraries as a kid. I went on the weekends with my parents, but also like Diane, both my parents worked. So after school, I would walk to the library over in Delhi. I would walk on up and I would spend some time there. I read a variety of books, but when I really started to love reading and books was when I happened across a series that was for kids called the White Mountain Series by John Christopher, 
was a book about alien invasion. And I really had no idea those kinds of books even existed. I remember picking that up and just loving the story and suddenly discovering my love of reading. I do also want to note that, as Diane said, I was an after-school kid, a latchkey kid, and I went to Delhi Junior High, which if anybody knows the Delhi area, it's right down the street from the Delhi branch. So I would go down to the Delhi Library, walk through the Delhi Park, and I, I do like to let folks know that as a kid, sometimes after school, as a teenager, it was a little hard for me to stay as quiet as necessary. So I have on occasion been asked to leave a library, <laughs> walk through the park and come back after I'd taken a lap. So I love libraries and I'm really pleased that I'm able to dedicate also my spirit of public service to libraries here in our county. Paula, what is the history of the Cincinnati Library and how has the library evolved over the years? Well, our library can trace its history back to a subscription library service, 1802. So that's when people would pay a small fee and then be able to borrow items from our library. So it was not nearly as all-encompassing or as inclusive as it is now. The library, as we know it now, wasn't actually formed until about 1852. And 1874 was when our library moved into that building at 629 Vine Street downtown, that big library that was originally designed as an opera house. So some of our listeners may know that the pictures that you see widely circulated of the old, old library, that's 629 Vine. It's never a library, and folks who worked there said it was beautiful but very difficult to work in. So the new main library, which the staff and administration and trustees worked so hard for, that opened in its current location. 1955. And obviously, it's an architectural wonder. And we kept building on that main library. So we have the original building, a wraparound building, and then that building across the street. So it's about 500,000 square feet at Maine. The branch system started in 1906 with the Walnut Hills branch, which was partially funded by Andrew Carnegie. So that building, if you've been there, and maybe we'll have a chance to talk about it in a little later. It's been renovated recently. They spared no expense. It was heavily competed for. Where would we put the branch? Walnut Hills won. And as an example of how much attention they paid to that building, the columns in the front were actually imported from Europe. So it is quite a historical building in terms of its significance and also for the residents. The library continued to expand and our post-war population moved to the suburbs. We added branches up to the current total of the 40 branches we have now, along with that main library. It's about a million square feet of public space across all of Hamilton County. And we constantly, throughout our long history, have remained an innovative, adaptable, and flexible library system, always focused on service to our community, from being the first country, uh, first library in the country to circulate lantern slides, which were an old form of how people would capture their vacations. They had these lantern slides. You can still look at them. They're a really unique kind of media. Also started to offer VHS tapes. If you have younger people listening, they may not know what a VHS tape is, but that was quite a big leap to circulate media that was visual. And we have continued to move through things like database searching, digitization of historical material so that people can really have great access, circulating laptops, which we do now through our laptop kiosks at many of our branches, providing makerspace equipment. All of these things are a continual evolution of 
information and how people relate to information. You know, it's not like when I was a kid and we'd go down to the main library and you'd pull out the card file and you had your own individual thing. Information now is really collaborative, like what we're doing now, sharing information, using technology. So the library has continued to move in that direction. And the final thing I'd like to point out, because we have been doing a lot of work on our facilities, is space as a resource. People really love coming to the library, but also having different kinds of spaces, the meeting rooms, the small study rooms, those kinds of things that anchor communities and also allow individuals to come into a public space, but still have some separation. So people working from home, they come in, they need to be in a quieter place that they just need not to be at home. They reserve our study rooms. You can work for hours at a library, but not have to be in the same place or get a new perspective on things. Diane, you served on numerous community boards and committees, including the Ohio Governor's Council on Aging. What role does the library play in the community today? Well, the library continues to play an important role in the community, serving as a vital resource for education, information, and social interaction. The CHPL, Cincinnati Hamilton County Public Library, provides free access to a wealth of information in the form of books and magazines, newspapers, and online resources. This is particularly important for those who may not have the means to purchase books or access the internet from home. Many of our libraries have laptop kiosks that a customer can use that laptop within the library with our free internet. So we offer a variety of other resources and programs that support lifelong learning, such as book clubs, writing workshops, lectures, programs, and workshops on various topics. Kind of pivoting on my Ohio Governor's Council on Aging role, I was appointed as a patient advocate because in their late years, my mother and her sisters lived with me until they passed away. So a lot of our library get, libraries give seniors, especially, somewhere to go, somewhere to be with other people. They may not see another person for a week at a time. And this way they can join if they want to join. If not, they can just be with people at a library, which is so important for mental health. So our libraries do serve as a hub for the community and provide a safe and welcoming space for people to gather. We offer computers, internet access, other technology resources for public's use. And this is, of course, at no charge to the public, which can be especially valuable for those who don't have access to these resources at home. During the pandemic, we found that many, many school children did not have home internet. So our internet service was on 24 hours a day. We had many customers, parents, children outside our doors for the short amount of time we were closed because we were not closed very long for in-person, but they could access the internet 24 hours a day in our parking lots. We are also offer a wide range of services that support early literacy, such as story times and reading programs. We were part of the Governor's Imagination Library The First Lady was at the Deer Park Branch to kind of celebrate the one millionth book that was gifted to young children. So the program provides free books mailed to that child with that child's name on it from age zero to five years old monthly. And it's a wonderful, wonderful program for early literacy. Our summer food program is funded by the United States Department of Agriculture and managed by the High Department of Education, but we distribute those meals to the communities. So children in the summer who are not able to get adequate nutrition at home, can come to the library, they can enjoy our programs, and they can get some food while they're there. So we do play a critical role in promoting education, fostering community, and providing access to information and resources for all people of all backgrounds and ages. We work very closely with other institutions. We have partnerships with schools to provide resources and programs that support children's academic success. 
We have joint program with museums and cultural institutions. A lot of my friends don't even know if they need a pass to the Cincinnati uh, Museum Center. They can reserve it at the library by just having this free library card and go on days off with their children to enjoy our beautiful museum center or the Cincinnati Museum of Art. Collaborate with local government. We work to identify community needs, local health department, and other health-related programming and resources. We distributed more than 200,000 COVID tests in the last two years. When the state of Ohio bought several million COVID tests. They really didn't have a distribution plan in place. But since the library already has distribution, and we have 41 locations with our trucks that take materials from library to library, we were able to distribute those at our drive through locations. There were nine of those, I believe, drive through locations. So we were not putting our, our employees at risk for exposure. So we are also aware of the valuable collections that we have. We've partnered with the University of Cincinnati Preservation Lab to conserve physical materials for the library, and we take the ability to hold history in our walls, whether they be internet walls or physical walls, very seriously. A friend of mine who is blind, the library offers them what kind of a program they send books to them. The Cincinnati Association of the Blind was actually one of the first places of its kind in the country that would convert books into Braille for those that were visually impaired as well. We just reopened the Madisonville branch across the street from the old building that the community loves, but that was the last branch that we had that was not ADA compliant. So now every branch is ADA compliant. Now, some of them are not as state-of-the-art as we would like, but they are on the facility master plan to be upgraded in the next year, hopefully a year to two years. When we talk about physical limitations, that goes from blind, hearing impaired, and those that are physically able, unable to get up steps and to get into our branches. Paula, what unique collections does the library have, and how do you make it available to the public? Our library has a fantastic collection. It's very deep with a lot of historical items and unique items. Our collection has been growing for obviously more than Hundred years. Today we have 60,000 items in our Cincinnati room, which is our local history and rare book room, the Stern Cincinnati room at the downtown library. One of the most important items that I always like to highlight, it's one of my favorites, is the 1848 Fontaine and Porter Daguerreotype. Is that again? <laughs> Say it again. It's, uh, it's from 1848, and the gentlemen who made that are Fontaine and Porter. They were specialists in this particular kind of new photography that okay. produced these daguerreotypes. Talk about amazing technology for its time. When it came out, it toured the country, it went to the World's Fair, currently survives as the oldest comprehensive photograph of an American city, and it really offers an incredibly detailed view of the city and its residents at that time. So Fontaine and Porter set up this daguerreotype photography camera on the Newport side of the river one day, and they took a panorama of the Cincinnati side, and it is amazing. The thing about daguerreotype This is a very complex technical way to do photographs, but it produces a level of detail that even modern photographs really cannot necessarily replicate. So if you come to the library and you look at this, you can really look at the technology that we have that sits next to it that allows you to zoom in and look at various things, including the time on the clock tower when these guys really took the panorama. And many historians have viewed that to get a 
idea of what was going on in a typical river city at this time in history. It has been preserved and then we worked with the state for a grant a couple of years ago to work with the Eastman House, which specializes in this kind of photography and restoration of it. We were very fortunate that earlier directors of the library kept this preserved. As I noted, many of these have been lost to time. But as Diane said, our library here has always taken quite seriously maintaining these kinds of pieces. So we were able to restore that. I could have a whole podcast on the daguerreotype, but I just want to point out that we have really uh, dedicated access and preservation for our, our community's cultural heritage. We have that collaboration that Diane mentioned with the Preservation Lab over at the University of Cincinnati. So that allows for a professional conservator to really look at our items and preserve the physical part. But we also have a digitization lab that scans those items and makes things available. So we have historians from not just our area, but across the country and the world who can look at our digital library and find items that now they have access to. So that's a, a common theme across everything is trying to provide access in whatever way we can. Being one of the oldest libraries in the country, we have just an astounding collection of material. It consists of materials as old as our 21st century B.C. cuneiform tablets, which I think Diane, early in her tenure, came down and took a look I, at. Yeah, it. that was a, I played the trustee card and said, okay, I really need to see this cuneiform tablet because it just goes right back into my childhood of Greece and Sparta and, and the Hammurabi Code. I just, I, it was amazing to think that 20-some centuries ago, a person lived that could that developed language, really the first written language on this little clay tablet. And I got to say, it was way smaller than I thought it was. I thought of Moses with the uh, Ten Commandments at Easter time, and it was way smaller than that. I think much lar- not much larger than a postage stamp. It was something. Before we move on to talking about how the libraries adapted, there are lots of programs, and I'm thinking like STEM, children's programs. Let's address all these kind of programs across the the city, across the county. Yeah, a lot of that falls to our our talented managers and assistant managers of the different branches. It's what the community wants. So we're very community-oriented. If the Reading community wants to have a certain program, then the manager will talk to Paula if they need resources. If not, they are pretty much at ease to, to set up something themselves. Absolutely. And we have, of course, the standard programs offered across the system that you mentioned earlier in terms of story time, things that people traditionally think about. But Diane mentioned the Madisonville branch. That's a great example of how we're trying to engage young people with electronic resources. We have a virtual reality station there, gaming collaborative stations also at the Deer Park. So kids that come after school Rather than when I was a kid and you had to take a lap at the park, you can come in and really do some collaborative work in an area that is interesting to you. In the city, Councilmember Liz Keating has an e-gaming initiative she's working on, and the library is heavily involved with that. So trying to engage young people in technology in a way that makes sense to them and also then lead them to other things like our maker spaces. We do a lot of program around our maker equipment, trying to help people develop these technology skills. Teens on up to adults, they can have access to material to build their, uh, to technology to build their skills that they may not be able to buy at home, wouldn't know how to buy, wouldn't know what they needed. They come to the library, we'll offer programs around these kinds of things. But of course, we also do some programs related to things like getting ready for life after high school for teenagers. 
Chancellor Randy Gardner, I was at a chamber event and he was on the panel and I asked him, what's the one thing somebody like the library could do to really help us prepare the workforce for some of these high level jobs we know we're going to need and we're going to need in Ohio? And he said, have kids fill out the FAFSA, have them fill out that financial aid form that lets them know how they can get financial aid for post high school education. So we have a big future ready initiative. And part of that is working with experts from our local higher ed community, UC, to have people fill out the forms that help them understand how they can have access to education. In the same way that the COVID tests were great distributions, we were a great distribution site there because people know where the library is. When you come in, we ask just the one question, how can we help you? Same kind of thing with something like the FAFSA. People don't know how to do that. They can come to the library, get some information and really feel like they are empowered to use the resources that we have to get them where they want to be in life. You mentioned the Council on Aging. We do a lot around that. We also have done some programs for caregivers and people suffering some level of cognitive or memory loss. People can come in. We have programs related to seniors. And I always do like to say, A lot of our programs are in connection with other people, other partners. The 513 relief bus is going around. That's so important right now for people to get access to services, including health services. We host that at many of our branches, particularly branches with big parking lots. They love Deer Park. Those are great places for other resources to come in so that people can access not only the programs and services we offer, but really get a feel for all that is available to them throughout the county. Last week, I had to go down to the main library, and I got there 10 minutes before you opened. And there were like 40 people outside waiting to get in. I couldn't believe it. Yes. And you have it all set up for them if they want to use computers. We do. And I think one thing, that that brings up something that I always like to highlight. It's a partnership that's important with the Hamilton County Job and Family Services. So that is a important resource for so many people across our county, but there aren't very many outlets for that. It used to be that if you needed to give something to them, you had to go downtown and give that to them. We now have a partnership with free faxing and free submission. So people who need to give their documents to JFS, they come to the library. Documents for what? For whatever they need from the Hamilton County Job and Family Services, be that they're applying for government assistance or other government programs, they can come to the library. They have their forms. We help them. We fax that over. So if they have transportation issues, if they have their kids with them and they can't get downtown, they can come to their nearest library. They can be out in Sims Township. They can be in Harrison. They can be in Reading. They can do that right from the library so that they have a connection right with their government agency that they're trying to work with. Listeners like to hear some personal stories, and I'd like you to tell about what communities you live in, a little bit about your family. Diane, let's start with you. Your family is very involved. I raised my sons in Sycamore Township and then later Madeira, downsizing recently to Evendale. I'm a very proud graduate of Deer Park High School in the University of Cincinnati. One of my sons is an attorney and consistently rated as a super lawyer. My other son is a small business owner. After 25 years as an executive chef in local fine dining restaurants, his wish was to become an entrepreneur. So during the pandemic in 2020, he decided to open a butcher shop in Madeira. His business card lists him as a meat czar, and his shop has a couple write-ups already in the Cincinnati Enquirer. I'm very proud of the men they've become. My brothers and I remain close, and I'm proud of their professional and personal accomplishments. 
My history is my mother became a single mom in 1962 with four children and no high school diploma. Along with her sisters, they raised us with no outside financial support. None such existed really in 1962. She stressed hard work and education to the key to success. She lived to see all of us get college degrees and become involved, contributing adults with families of our own. All that we are, we learned from her. She taught us how to treat people and that no one is better than anyone else. She worked for 25 years at the Hot Shop Restaurant, which a lot of old listeners will remember, and it was at the old Kenwood Mall. It was a great place for teenagers to get an after-school or summer job. Even today, I see people with whom she worked as they were young teenagers, and they'll mention her and how she taught them to have a strong work ethic. Really can't say enough about our background is what makes us who we are today, and my brothers and I were fortunate to have her. You didn't mention your brother. Tell us who he is. Bill Cunningham, a.k.a. Willie. A lot of, he mentions our family history pretty often, especially around Father's Day. Our father served in World War II, like many baby boomers' parents. He was a Marine, and we're quite sure that the marriage fell apart because it was undiagnosed. Today, we would call it PTSD. It was a sad life, I think, that he held, he led, to leave four children. It had to be catastrophic to him as much as it was catastrophic to us. But Bill tells his story usually around Father's Day. So um, I'll leave that for Bill to do since he's the 40-year professional on the radio, and I am simply an amateur. Okay, well, thank you, Diane. And Paula, about your life. Sure. I mentioned I grew up in Delhi. My parents and my sister still live in Delhi. I currently reside in Clifton. But as a kid, that's where I grew up. My parents went to Catholic school over in St. Bernard, actually. So my dad went to Roger Bacon, and my my mom went to Our Lady of Angels, which listeners may know or not, because, of course, now it's part of Roger Bacon. My sister went to Seton, and I went to Our Lady of Victory, shout out to OLV, as a kid for elementary school. But sometime around junior high, I decided to give something. I decided maybe I'd give public school a shot. I had done a lot of swimming in the summer for the Cincinnati Rec Center and had been around at a lot of neighborhoods that I was intrigued by and met a lot of different kind of folks. So I went to Delhi Junior High, and I stuck with public education on through. Proud graduate of Oak Hills High School still have brunch with some of the girls I graduated from Oak Hills with. We won't talk about how long ago that was. Then one went up to UC, another public institution, and gathered a couple degrees from all of the uh, public institution of each of the tri-state areas, I like to say. My husband and I met at Indiana University, and we got married after knowing each other for just a couple months. We've been married now for over 25 years. We do, as I noted, live in Clifton, love doing that. My dad is a veteran as well, Diane. He served a couple tours on the USS Haddock, which is a nuclear sub. He's very proud of that. He and I do model trains together, and we go to a lot of model train shows, and he wears proudly his hat and gets a lot of thank you for your service. So, of course, a shout out to my dad for that. I will also give my sister a shout out. Another kind of unusual thing about me is sometime in my 40s, I decided to start running and do triathlons. And yeah, now I didn't say I was any good at them. I just do them. I love to swim and I love to run and I tolerate biking. But my sister will go to those with me. And if you've ever been to one and you're an observer, you have to get up very early for the people to start the race. So I will say that my sister's a dedicated supporter of mine, so much so that she'll sit quietly in the dark at 530 in the morning in a bunch of strange places as everybody else is getting ready for these crazy triathlons. So I do remain close to my family. My niece and nephew are both up at Bowling Green. My sister and I are both the first 
to have done college as well. So I'm very proud of that and proud of my niece and nephew too. Well, this is great hearing your stories. Before we close, I didn't bring up the thing about how the libraries adapted to the digital age, but I also want to connect it with how is the public library funded? And do you face challenges, do you foresee challenges in the future? Thank you very much. It's an important question because stable, consistent funding allows us to do so much. We've talked a lot about the wide variety of programs, services, partnerships we have, our preservation efforts for our collection. We also have great needs around our infrastructure. We have those 41 locations, many of which are older than 100 years. When we started our facility master plan, which is our comprehensive improvement plan, For our facilities, the average age of a building or the average time of one of our buildings since it had been built or renovated was over 40 years. So we really had a lot to do. Diane mentioned we had three that were not accessible at all. So if you couldn't do steps, you couldn't get in them. And they had been like that for 80, 90, 100 plus years. So we've been working to remedy those things, but the way that that has to happen is through stable, consistent funding. We're fortunate here in Ohio that public libraries do receive robust support at the state level. So for us, that means about 50% of our funding comes from the state and about 50 comes from two local levies that we have. The history of that funding is somewhat complex. I'll do my best to give a little bit of context though, because it is important that people understand. Here in Hamilton County, we did not have any local levies until 2009. All of our funding came from the state, and the state had provided a portion of the general revenue fund, so the overall state revenues, dedicated to the 251 libraries in Ohio that is then proportioned out. Hamilton County gets a portion of that. We get a larger portion of that than a couple of other counties because we have the one library system. If you go up to Cuyahoga County, for example, they have multiple library systems. Here we have a pretty efficient system. So we have one system, so one HR department, one technology support department, all of those things, but we're the only game in town and we support all 800,000 residents. When the Great Recession was going on, there was a need to have some funding formulas changed. The library's funding at the state level was reduced at that point. It used to be in a different kind of fund, but it was about 2.22% of general revenue fund. And over the time following the Great Recession in the mid-2000s, it kind of decreased and has landed generally between about 1.66 and 1.7%. In 2009, we pursued our first local levy, one mil, to help make up for that lack of uh, state funding that we had always had previously. When we talk about funding for the library, we have a couple different streams, which is better, but then they are always up for discussion and reconsideration, which is a valid thing because we certainly want to be responsive to the community. However, it does make funding a year-to-year kind of question for us. Right now, the state is in their biennial budget cycle, and there are proposals at the state level about changing the way that taxes happen that would deeply impact all libraries, including our library. So we know it's early in that process, but currently, if you look at things like the flat tax or some of the property rollbacks, some of those changes, which changing the tax code of any state is extremely complex, and we understand that. We understand we've talked with our delegates here from Southwest Ohio and worked with the state-level Association for Public Libraries, and we understand that doing change is perhaps something every 
it's inevitable. And we understand that what is proposed right now may not be what happens, but we also are trying to communicate very clearly those changes would result in millions of dollars lost across the state for public libraries, but individually here would be a significant change if things went forward for us. So we do have the local levies. Hamilton County residents have been very generous in supporting us. I mentioned the the first levy we passed in 2009. That one has been renewed in 2013. It will be up again here expiring because in 2013 it was a 10-year levy. We're in 2023 now. We did pass another one in 2018, another one mil levy. And that is really, those dollars are what we've been using to improve our buildings or make them accessible, make them up to the ability to support the kind of modern library service our community wants and needs. I say all that. I know it's complicated, but it is a year-to-year sort of thing, and we constantly try and let our residents, our voters, our legislators know the value we bring, and sometimes the changes that are made, libraries, the impact on libraries, it's not fully understood. So we're currently talking to them and trying to figure out exactly what will happen. We won't know what the state budget, the final version of it is until later in the spring or even early summer. We will continue to communicate that. But I do think it's really important for people to understand those changes would result in loss of funding for us and stable, consistent funding is what we need. So we would have to consider how we can accomplish that with some of the changes that could happen. They may be phased in, they may not happen exactly as they are, but they may be happening this biennial budget or in the coming. As a former controller of a company and a recovering accountant, as I like to call myself, I would want to point out that the library has received Auditor State Award of Distinction and a Certificate of Achievement from the Government Finance Officers Association in 2021 for our annual comprehensive financial report. And I'm happy to say that we are on Ohio Open Checkbook, which was an initiative started, I don't know, seven, eight years ago by the treasurer at the time at the state of Ohio. So uh, we're pretty transparent where everything goes, and I think that's an important consideration. We have virtually nothing to hide. We're good stewards. For every dollar the library receives in funding, we return about $5 plus worth of value to the community. That's a pretty good ROI as an accountant. Just before we close, I want people to understand we're doing this interview from the Reading Library. I'd like to have a comment about this building, what it means. Absolutely. This building is one that we were able to re- it's redone in 2015. We used to be down the street in a little storefront. It was way too small, didn't have parking. We moved down here. It's a great new building. It has all the things we've been talking about, study rooms, space, a maker space, a great collection, and a lot of parking. So we are really pleased to be able to offer this to community, and the community has embraced it. It also has some environmental positives. that Diane- Right. It's a Leeds building, so anybody out there that follows energy policy, you can know that this beautiful building is a certified Leeds building. The community so much appreciated. As a close-by neighbor, I'm kind of torn between the Deer Park branch and this branch as to which one's my favorite at this point. I want to say High Heels and Politics is privileged to shine a spotlight on you Two remarkable women for your hard work and tenacity to build and adapt to the needs of all Cincinnatians with your work at the Cincinnati Library. Thank you, Thank you very much. High Heels and Politics is produced by Marianne Christie and Ryan Kulik. Engineered by Ryan Kulik. Music by Sherrod Sate. 
subscribe to High Heels and Politics on Google, Apple, Spotify, and all of your podcast networks.